I'll be too nervous to. I'll probably lost the words. to another edition of the Lost Words podcast. I'm joined today by golf photographer, golf high kicker, golf male model, uh, everything else, RGV Tour Commissioner, Patrick Koenig. Patrick, welcome. Hey, well, it's a pleasure to, to be on the, on the show. Hopefully, we won't, we won't be at a total loss for words here on the <laughs> Lost Word podcast. It's always... Uh... I always like to see the irony come through in the name, and, and, and some people I think just gloss over the name, and I'm glad you picked up on that, so that's great. And uh, <laughs> we spoke a, a couple of years ago now, which seems crazy, really, um, and you just wrapped up the RGV tour, um, something I'm sure you never get bored about uh, talking about and uh, and reliving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting. I gain perspective as I as I get away from that life on the on the road for. A, a full solid year and my my opinions of it um, are always fond and i look back with a, a renewed sense of appreciation the further I, I get away from what that was like um you know a full year living out of an rv playing golf every day was certainly the certainly the dream and so i mean i'll talk for hours about it yeah absolutely before we we come on to that because i think it's good to get a little bit of background on on yourself and and what were your early memories of of getting into golf because the series that we want to focus on here is you know why we love golf and why the specific person's on is loves golf so a bit about your story as you're younger because if i remember correctly you weren't massively into golf as a junior it kind of grew into an adult life yeah yeah i mean i think um i didn't start you know a lot of the kids that i grew up competing with and i didn't really start until like high school pretty much um and by then you, you know you got prodigies already underway. <laughs> um, golf was a different game back when I started. It was, you know, Tiger Woods was, was you know, uh, just coming up. Um, so he hadn't made the influence yet. But I was just a, a little kid in Indiana. And it started with a little course called Arlington Park, a little executive nine hole, nothing longer than 296, I think, that long. The ninth hole was, was almost 300 yards. Uh, not, not a bunker on the course. And I, I grew up just collecting golf balls before I even played. <laughs> before I even played golf, I was a big fan of golf balls and and collecting them. And I'd sell them at the local garage sale. We had an association garage sale at Arlington Park, and uh, make a couple hundred bucks as a kid, which was which was fun. And so that was kind of my introduction to golf. But then eventually, I picked up and started hitting those golf balls. And that's when I think most people can identify it. If you're a hardcore golfer, the disease kind of just envelops your your soul and you're compelled to play and <laughs> I, you know I, I played a lot by myself and just trying to beat my personal best out there competing against myself um just going around that nine hole course i'd do it like eight times a day i'd just go around and around and around and always trying to beat my my nine hole score which was fun and that's where i really loved started to love the, the game of golf yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you got to a pretty high standard yourself, your single figure handicap and then eventually plus one at one point as well. When was it at the, the younger stage when you realized, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good at this and this isn't just fun? And because obviously you're a very competitive guy by nature and you're quite obsessive about the game of golf eventually. Yeah, I think it was when I was I realized I was pretty good was when I started in, in high school um, and I realized that competing against others that I could get in there and finish, you know, top three, or I won a couple tournaments here and there. It was nothing, nothing major, but I, well, the, 
I remember I won the Bruin Invitational. I shot a 74, um, and I was just beside myself. Um, you know, like any young golfer, you're like, I'm going to win the Grand Slam of golf, and this is it. <laughs> uh, you, you lack a lot of perspective at that age. Um, and so it was it was fun just to compete and to be able to, to play, play good golf. And there's a difference, obviously, between playing uh, recreationally, which is what I do now, and then playing uh, competitively. It's a whole different animal and uh it's it's fun you know it's it, it matters like your your chips matter and there's a little bit of extra uh skin in the game when you're you're playing to to post a score but i realized i was pretty good at it and then and quickly you know the better you get you know the more exposure you get to other players and then you realize how not good you are <laughs> uh, and, and that you know kind of matured when i when i looked at playing potentially in college and I went out to the the golf coach out there at Indiana University and he told me that I was about as good as the worst player on the team and he had no doubts that I could I could cut it but it was the mental game that needed to be in it because you have to play golf every morning get your classes or you have to get your classes done by I think it was like noon and then golf in the afternoon weekends are for travel and I, w- I took a look around the Indiana University campus and saw the the type of ladies that were were. <laughs> <laughs> my my mindset at that point in time was not into golf, and so I decided to uh, pick up the the party career. Uh, and I and I kind of took a little bit of hiatus from golf. I'd play here and there in, in college, but my focus was certainly not on becoming. You know, at that level, you have to commit to being a professional athlete. Um, and do the sort of things. And that's, I've always had the most respect for college athletes, the things that they do, you know, they're, they're a professional athlete and they're trying to get a degree uh, and go into school and all, all. So, I mean, they're, it's an unbelievable what a lot of those kids do given the demands on them these days. It yeah. wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things I want to touch on there. Is the first was, is that you said that you decided at the time that it wasn't really for you to, to commit and play college golf. And it, and from the conversation I have with you in the past and in the post that I see from you, I don't think you're a guy that has a lot of regrets, right? I don't think you look back and, and see that as something that you, you want to change. Is there any thought now with the perspective that you got that if you'd applied yourself, it'd be nice to see how far you could have gone in the game of golf? Yeah, I mean, there's two things there. Is that one, yeah, sure, it would have been interesting to see if I had an entirely different brain. Um, what <laughs> If I had really applied myself how far I could have gone. Um Part of me thinks that I probably would have gotten pretty good, but not good enough to get to that that next level. That's kind of my guess that I would have been able to compete, maybe win some stuff here and there. But I don't think I'm cashing checks on the PGA Tour. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, you never know. Anything's possible. So that would have been interesting to see. But you know, when I when you look at it, golf for me is turned into such a fun thing that I love to do so much. And at that point, had I selected this is a, essentially an occupation, it may have turned into something different. You know, you hear stories about guys that just get burnt out. They don't appreciate the game because it's such a grind and their score is the only thing that matters. Um, and I've appreciated golf for so many different reasons. You know, the people that you get to meet, the places that you get to go, the the beauty of the golf course. And I think a lot of that might have been lost in me. I may have burned out and not developed the sort of love of the game that I have now and I would probably be in an entirely different place which I'm I'm pretty happy of, of the way that golf fits into my life and how I've been able to 
essentially turn it into a career um, without having to worry about my score. So, yeah, I mean, there's two things, but I, I definitely wouldn't go back and be like, I'm, I really wish I would have given this a shot, knowing how good the players are out there and uh, just kind of my myself. I feel like I, I, I chose the right right move. Yeah, I think that, that's something that I was going to go on to is the fact that that's it is like you're saying. I think you're hitting that on the head that they are professionals before they turn professionals in college. Because a lot of the guys that I've spoken to uh, doing golf interviews with the pros on the PGA Tour, they've sort of I've always asked what happened between college and professional if it hasn't worked out, and it's always a case of like you, you know you've got a coach on your on your ass for most of the day, most of the week, trying to get you into a schedule and and force you out of bed and things like that. And that sounds like something that potentially wouldn't have suited you back in the college yeah. days of being forced to do things. And and like you say now, that the biggest part of your life or the biggest enjoyment you get out is playing golf recreationally as opposed to, I mean, yes, you're probably still competitive and yes, you want to make birdies as much as you can, mm-hmm. but there has to be that fun element to it. It has to be your escape rather than your whole life. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, it's two different ways that a professional looks at the game and the way that I... I look at the game and uh, it would have been a grind. I mean, I, I mean, trying to do that in college, I was entire, I don't think I, they probably cut me from the team. I'd have shown up hung over too many times, <laughs> just straight up missed the, the thing. So it wasn't even in the, in the realm of possibility given, uh, you know, the amount of partying that was, was taking place there. Uh, I think the writing, I kind of knew it was on the wall, um, but I was, I was, uh, ready to get get rolling with the party scene yeah i think that's a great segue into into the topic that we want to go on to and, and patrick you've been very open in interviews in the past and we had a conversation before and you had a you know an unhealthy relationship with alcohol it was a battle and you know anyone that knows you that spent you, know, you we see you play golf for 365 days of the year mm-hmm. you have an obsessive personality and at the time during you know college days and in early adulthood your obsession led to a battle with alcohol if you just want to speak on that and you know, first of all, when you start to realize you had a problem and, and what you were to, to remedy that? Yeah, so I mean, I had a, it was a seven-year duel uh, that that I lost uh, pretty <laughs> pretty spectacularly. I mean, I started in, in high school and I immediately was just a, a binge drinker. I think a lot of my, my friends did the same sort of thing, but I always kind of knew that it was like, I really liked beer and vodka and whiskey or whatever, <laughs> whatever in front of me. I would, I would drink it down and just go for like, there was no normal drinking ever, <laughs> like ever. Um, it would always just get, just get wrecked. And, you know, it was fun. Cause I, at the time it was a way for me to, you know, be the life of the party, kind of live that American lifestyle that uh, culture has glamorized. And so I, I figured this is it. This is what you're supposed to do is just get, just get messed up and, you know, do keg stands and, and <laughs> tell us stories about, this and that and the other thing and uh, yeah so I mean it, it started off in high school and then really really blossomed into a train wreck in, in college you know there's some funny good times in there but like you know I look back and it was I was just drinking way too much it was above the uh, the normal college experience and I mean colleges you know a lot of booze uh, <laughs> and a lot of a lot of beer parties and I and I was at every single one of them I felt like so I kind of, you know, you realize, I think there's for every alcoholic early on, there's a voice in your head that, you know, you know, anybody listening to this that's currently drinking and like kind of knows, they know, you know, and uh, 
but the thing about alcoholism, it just doesn't let you, you know, when you know, you don't just stop because that's the, that's the nature of the disease. You've got to really <laughs> go through some pain is what it is. You've got to, you know, the term is to reach your, your bottom. Uh, and for some people, sadly, that is in a grave or in jail. Um, the majority, I think, I don't know through the specific numbers, but it doesn't end well for a lot of people. And the only way to do that is once you're, you know, you flipped into that alcoholism is to, to stop completely. And I didn't realize that until, um, you know, out of college, several years out of college after partying in, you know, in Chicago and then San Francisco, I think I took my final sip of alcohol after a, a weirdo bender in, <laughs> in um, on June 20th of 2005. And so um, over the next couple of days, it was not fun withdrawing from, from alcohol. But once you kind of realize that, hey, I can't do this. Like I, I have things that I wanted to accomplish in my life and people that I care about, and none of it is really possible to, to accomplish or to treat others um, like they deserve to be treated when you're consuming this much alcohol and the only the only solution is to stop entirely and that was what you know i, I kind of figured out somewhat on that day uh, and uh it's been oh, yeah, 2005 it's 15 16 years later i've uh i've managed to not have a drink of alcohol uh which is unbelievable i would have never fathomed that back when i back in 2005 but i i the rewards are unbelievable, and it they come slowly. Uh, I think most alcoholics or people they want that immediate fix, and they want everything to be better, and everything's great right away. And you've got to wait. You've got to you've got to work on it every day, and then slowly you look back and you're like, whoa, this really made a huge difference. I mean, I'm an entirely different person um, from the kid that that woke up from that stupor in in 2000, <laughs> 2005, and completely different. My morals what I care about, my priorities have all been, are, they've just been replaced, um, which is great because my relationships have been much better. You know, I've been able to, to, you know, fortunately, you know, I take a look at my drinking career of seven years. I call it a career because it was kind of like, that's what, <laughs> what it was. Um, and, you know, I, I look back and it's only seven years and I look at other alcoholics that have struggled with it for 25 30 years and i mean i'm fortunate you know a lot of people cause fatalities um they destroy families ruin ruin kids childhoods um i had none of that so you know to have a relatively short career and realize that it was over uh pretty soon was that just sort of gusto i had for for the booze <laughs> was a was a blessing in disguise because it was so obvious so bad so quickly as compared to to others that go a slower, more disastrous path over over time. So I, you know, I had my whole my whole life to to make uh, make good on it. Yeah, there's a couple. There's, well, there's, there's plenty to unpack there, and there's a couple of things I really want to focus on. Is the first thing you said was that you, you kind of started in high school and college, and and you hear this a lot, right? Everyone goes to college and they drink for a really good time, and if you're not drinking, you kind of lost one, left one out, and and everyone kind of sometimes a lot of people drink because they feel like they have to because they want to fit in it sounds like you were quite happy too at the time um but do you think like you said it you know it was a couple of years after you come out of the the college scene and, and you're slightly younger adult that you realized there was a problem 
do you think at the time it's almost impossible at a college to realize there is a problem because it just feels like the norm because everyone else around you is kind of a bit like an echo chamber effect yeah i mean i would i would love to go back to college because now i can handle myself in in situations where there's there's drinking uh, and have a good time at a party uh, yeah and without alcohol and so i realized i kind of found that key is like that would have been great i would have remembered everything woke up early went to class and uh, it you know a lot of those situations are absurd so it wouldn't have really been my cup of tea but at that age you know just looking back at the the mind of a, a college student and you're still developing um, and really the perspective you, you, you have is, is so still so narrow um, that I don't know if it, that's a good question, right? Is it really possible? And you don't see a lot of recovering alcoholics in college, right? So you're, <laughs> you're kind of on the upwards uh, swing of it, unless you were, I don't know, Drew Barrymore and doing drugs <laughs> Hollywood early on, you know, she might've had some perspective after having gone through it, but, Life is a lot about experience, and so if you are able to take that experience and then learn from it, uh, yeah, you can maybe you can maybe not drink and enjoy yourself and, and navigate that landscape. But most people don't have enough experience to really know what's going on, and so you know you're still young and you're 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 going in, and it's it's easy just to jump right in and do the party party scene. So for me, absolutely not. I couldn't have. I don't know what how I would have not drank <laughs> in college. Um, but I'm sure there's people out there that have managed to find a way. And uh, there's certainly a lot of people that just don't drink because they have parents that are alcoholics and they know it's uh, hereditary and their predisposition to suffering a, a, you know, an alcoholic future. And so they don't drink and then they're forced to you know, forge these social skills and these tools to, navigate a, a booze-filled party environment and they do it well and so those people um they're weird to me because <laughs> i obviously uh didn't do it but that's a that's a great way to do it you know if you can figure out those skills without the aid of substance you're better off you know you're i feel like now i've got like everybody else has to go in and they have to drink to have a good time and i just go and have a good time you save money and uh, I can always give safe rides home and, and things like that. I look at it as like a really cool thing that I'm able to do. Whereas, uh, you know, some people are, I don't know how they're able to do it at that, at that young age. Um, and I, you know, you learn those skills and alcohol kind of takes the ability away to really ingrain something into your personality. Cause it's, it's like that crutch that you need. And, you know, there's all sorts of things, alcohol-induced in, state learning, where you learn how to play games <laughs> under that certain influence. And right, So everything is so tied in with alcohol. And if you were to take it out and just develop on just you, not aiding yourself with, uh, with a substance, that's the cool thing that's, that people do. And, I, and I, I realized, you know, I started doing that only at the age of 25. Um, and so there was some some real opportunities I missed out for really cool, you know, whatever that may have been if I had not been drinking to develop as a, as a person. And you really, I mean, if you look back at it and I say, you know, those seven years, you kind of stunt your, your growth, not to say that I, didn't, you know, grow up tall. I mean, I'm, I'm six <laughs> feet, but you stunt your mental growth and you stunt your personality and you, you limit the, I mean, college is a great place to forge those, uh, those skills and the relationships uh, that I I squandered because I was 
you know, boozing it up. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's, I think it's really easy. Anyone that's seen your, your stories on Instagram, anyone that's seen your, your interviews, everyone knows you're you're the large and life personality. You're high on life, as it were. And, mm-hmm. and and it's kind of like you've almost, you've got, people wouldn't believe that you kind of almost relied on alcohol back in the day to, to achieve that, right? And now you can actually say that you had a seven-year spell of alcohol and then you've had 15 years since of, you know, not drinking at all. That's double the amount of time. And and you've probably grown and actually become, you know, a more exciting person to be around without even the need of even touching a drop of alcohol. Yeah, that's it's. I mean, it's true because it's like you know, it's funny because I think most of the people around me have never seen me drink at this point in time. Every once in a while, I run into somebody, but it's such a long time ago, right? And so they wonder, it's like, my gosh, you know, I'm out there dancing, have a good time at a party. It's like, what would Patrick be like? <laughs> I feel like if I were to like take a sip of, of alcohol, which I, I never, you know, would. But if I if I were to, uh, it, people would just stand, I'd like, stand back and just like wait for something like crazy. <laughs> what's he gonna do? He's gonna like punch people out, or like what's gonna happen? Um, and uh, fortunately, we'll never, hopefully, we'll never find out what 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 that's like. But it always cracks me up because they, they they see my personality now, and it's uh, it's enjoyable, it's fun, and it's plenty. Yeah, and, and and people don't think that. I think like when you're in that alcoholism, people think that maybe they're not enough, um, or they they need that substance for whatever gap they're trying to fill. And the truth is, if like you you harness the person you are, I mean, you really are enough. You, you know, you've there's great things within everybody. Um, it should be shared, and you can do it without without booze. It's uh, it doesn't seem like it's possible when you're drinking, at all. Um, and you wonder who you who you'd be without it, um, but if you give it a shot, you find out that there's some there's some great things. Um, I found that within myself, and I'm I'm sure there's thousands, if not millions, of others that have found out that that what it is what they're like. Because um, you're you're most people are great people, uh, and when they remove the booze and work on it, um, <laughs> that comes through. And so fortunately for me. I've been able to to share that with others, and everybody's better off. Yeah, well, the thing is as well is that like what I don't want to say is it was a good experience for you to have, and you know because it obviously wasn't. It was a terrible time part of your life. But for me, when I when I look at you know I'm 27 years of age, and you know, and I look around me, and I think there's people that still think that you have to drink to have a good time. We still go out, and and mm. people still want to go to the pub and bars and things like that, and they think they have to do that, right? And that's because they didn't reach the stage that you did where they relied on alcohol. They, they've always dabbled in it and, and almost and, and spent nights out and then they can have weeks off without it. Do you think it almost served you well? Because if you hadn't hit it so hard and hit such a low point, you, you know, you probably could still be doing it to this day. And OK, it wouldn't have been a massive problem. But now you've kind of you've completely taken it out of your life and, and you've had a different obsession instead. Yeah, I mean, there's two different types of people. I mean, there's normal people, and you and alcoholics can point them out pretty quickly because they drink in a manner that's not alcoholic. And uh, you know, I can point this. The same goes for me. Is like I watch somebody else in their behavior with alcohol, and I'm like, well, that guy's got a problem. You can really see pretty quickly because they drink like I did. Um, and I always just look at an awe of like a normal person. Like I don't know. <laughs> It was like, oh, you know, they go out and like, yeah, it's fun. Alcohol, I get it. it should be fun and, and get in and, and 
engaged in, you know, sporadically, and, you know, when the moment is appropriate. And people that do that, uh, more power to them. It's like, you know, you're just living your life and it's not a problem. They can they can take it or leave it. Uh, I don't understand it and I can't identify with how a normal person drinks. So it's like, I'm not the guy that you want to talk to about having having a normal drink. Um, and and so it's, you know, I'm, I definitely appreciate the fact that uh, I was able to to get to the bottom and kind of step back and, and look at it in, in an entirely different way. Yeah, and also the, the last point on that before we go on to the next stage is that golf and, and alcohol kind of go together, right? You know, you see a lot of videos of people going around, they're in golf carts and they're drinking beers and, the, and, and the, you know, whatever, you know, get to the ninth hole and they want to have a drink before they go on the 10th tee or, you know, there was always the 19th hole was associated with golf, right? And, you know, I guess, you know, the amount of times you've played golf and you've been around people and playing, is, it, is that ever hard or is it just because, you know, you're just so, it's been such a long time that you can kind of just completely, like you say, you're just so comfortable around people drinking because it's, because it is a sport, right, that does have that kind of stigma attached to it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think at this point, it's pretty easy for me to, I'm in my, my pattern, right? You know, Diet Coke for me, I'll sure I'll, got, I'll join you guys in the bar. And, uh, I'm fortunate that it, some alcoholics are different. And, uh, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Uh, a little more difficult to navigate at the beginning of, of not drinking. Cause you're like, mm-hmm. I always do this. Um, and so then what you're like, Oh, I just do this. And it's not a big deal. Most people are wildly supportive of you not drinking. So you find somebody that gives you a hard time about it. Like that person is, it's messed up. It yeah, is. Of course. And, and uh, you don't see those people. They just—they're not many of them, right? Because if you—if you kind of expose a vulnerability or a disease that you may have, people aren't going to give you a hard time about it. And if they are, they're probably like blacked out, drunk already, and stupid. And so you can—you can ignore those people pretty quickly. And uh, my life with golf it never really was heavily involved with booze. Because when booze was around, I didn't play golf. Yeah. Um, not- that I haven't enjoyed, you know, beverages on the golf course and played <laughs> weight. But it was always like I, I played better when I was sober. And so um, it didn't really, it wasn't heavily ingrained. So I was able to separate the two uh, pretty easily. That was a tough, or that was an easy, easy thing for me um, just to not, not drink while I was playing, which I pretty much did anyway. So um, it wasn't super hard. And you know, I'm I'm all for it. I mean, drunk people do funny things. So you know, somebody <laughs> wasted on the golf course, I'll I'll watch them make a fool or or just behave normally and have a couple of drinks. It's uh, I'm fortunate that it doesn't it doesn't bother me uh, like it could. Yeah, I think that's you know that's a, a wonderful spot to be in. The fact that not only because I imagine it'd be quite awkward, right? If people are if people want to play around a golf, you like the nature of your RGV tour was to welcome anybody and everybody around you to come play around a golf, and you wouldn't want them to feel awkward that they couldn't have a beer or a drink. Um, so it's great for you that you can kind of continue to do that and just be like, well, yeah, I'm quite happy with my diet coat. You crack on with that, and and we'll have a good round of golf regardless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people. Are people on the RGV tour were so generous. And so, you know, it's nice. A lot of people that may not know, you know, they gift you a, a nice bottle of whiskey or whatever it was. <laughs> so at, on that RV, I had, uh, I had drinks for people that wanted to, uh, wanted to partake, uh, you know, courtesy of, um, I remember the folks at French Lake gave me a nice little, 
little thing that I handed out uh, to to people as as they as they wanted to, and uh, but it was always very very casual, and there was no there was not a lot of beer parties. There were dance parties on that RV, but not a lot of uh, heavy drinking and carrying on. But let's get into the RGV tour then. We have, I've spoken to you about this before, but I want to bring this to the larger audience we have for this podcast now. I'm going to give the numbers out. So it's 365 was the days of playing golf, which is obviously a year. You had 405 different golf courses, mm-hmm. 793 new friends. You raised $20,000 for the first tee, which is remarkable. Uh, and 35,576 uh, miles was it clocked up in the RV as well. So there was uh, some numbers to be had there. Yeah, those are pretty good. I mean, I I look back and I was like, man, those could be better. Those are rookie, uh, <laughs> rookie but numbers. I, it was my rookie effort. If I ever uh, have the opportunity to do this again, uh, they're going to be world records shattered because uh, I'll go <laughs> harder. But that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good year. It's always fun when people ask me, you know, what's the most round of golf you ever played in a year, and so and they might not know about the RV tour. <laughs> I played about 450 rounds uh, in 2018. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> yeah, but the real the real number is anybody can go play 450 rounds. You know, just go to your local club and play it over and over. But 405 different golf courses. I think the world rec- I wasn't too far from the world record, and I didn't realize it was a world record um, for number of different golf courses played in one year. It was like 449, I think. Uh, and I didn't realize that until maybe like a quarter of the way in, somebody brought it up and I looked it up and, uh, but I already had my goals established. I had three main priorities and I said, let's not change the plan. Let's stick to the business plan. I wrote down when I created this thing and let's just, let's stay the path and you do what you want. Uh, and it, it, you know, if I would, if I had chased that, sure, that'd have been fine or whatever, but I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with my my performance out there in 2018 this is so we're just talking about your obsessive uh, personality uh so this is your vice now golf this is this is how you get your fix um mm-hmm. when how does it go from i'd like to play golf every day for a year and visit so many different golf courses to actually committing to it because you know you had to mm-hmm. give up a, a lot to go and do it um, I know, like you said, you had savings, you you know, there's a job that you knew you could get back to. But, you know, I, I saw an interview, you sort of said that a lot of people like the idea of doing it, but a lot, not a lot of people like the idea of the practicality side of it. And and you do have to jump in. Now, was there any sort of anxiety about doing that before you actually got off and running? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a couple of moments where I'm just like lying in bed is it's ready to happen. And I'm just kind of like, what are you doing? Are you, you're going <laughs> to you're going to quit your job and like. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, they have a job and they've always had a job and they've always done it. And quitting your job is like is empowering because you realize that there's more than one path through life and you can you can do it. You can you can quit your job. Nobody's stopping you from quitting your job and figuring out a way to survive without a job is a is 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 a an eye opening experience right you realize that there's a lot of different things that you can do out there and this was just what i what i wanted to do but there's there's certainly a lot of reservation jumping away from what's comfortable to living in an rv with the future kind of uncertain um and 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 that happened you know early on in the tour where i was like i didn't never owned an rv before so i didn't even know how to get electricity (laughs) 
where am I going to sleep every night? Like, how does, and, and like, I mean, I was still kind of figuring out the logistics of, you know, just living. Um, and so that was a little, little scary. Once I realized that uh, there was like a, an idiot moment along the way where that thing's got a generator on there. So it's like, it generates its own electricity, but I couldn't, I was like, well, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and I was like, so I was staying in like these places where I could hook up and get electricity every night, like the first month. And then I realized that there's like a little plug in the thing where you can plug the generator into the RV and it powers your outlets. And that, oh, that was big, you know. Um, Life changing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I could charge my devices and I could uh, edit photos freely without, you know, having to find the next outlet. And that was all good until the generator broke. Uh, <laughs> then that's a whole other issue that you got to deal with. Um, so like stuff like that comes up, and then, but what you realize it's like most people are pretty resourceful, and they'll find a way. At least I realize this about myself to to make it work if you if you've got to. Um, and that's and that's what I did when problems would arise. I'd assess the threat level and then and then plan plan accordingly. Um, some were more disastrous than others. And, you know, fortunately there was never anything really bad that happened. I mean, I could have gotten robbed. I could have crashed the RV, a lot of things that could have happened and uh, they didn't. So I was able to, to go on relatively smoothly for a full year. There must've been so much like you said, you just touched on there, what you learn about yourself spending a whole year in an RV. I mean, obviously you realize you know, your relationships and you build them with other people, but there must be a time when you look in, inwards at yourself and think, wow, like what stage have I got to in life where I feel comfortable doing this? You know, like you say, you come overcome different issues with the RV, with, with different stages of the tour, and you think, well, I've built a massive resilience here. And that obviously links back to the past problems you had. But, you know, it must have been quite, like you say, empowering to give up your job, then to, to really kick on with what you were doing from the tour, overcome any issues. Because I imagine if the, the first sign of like difficulty in an RV tour, I'd be like, right, that's it. I'm going home. It was a good effort. Like I'm happy, <laughs> but I've got a flat tire. So I need to call AA and I'm going home. But uh, imagine it must be so good to just be able to overcome that and just carry on on your journey. Yeah. And fortunately, I'd love to thank the tires on my RV because the, they were like almost maintenance free for that full year. I replaced <laughs> towards the end. Uh, before I before I sold it, but I mean the flat tire wouldn't have been fun. It would have been maybe a story or something, but like it's not really a good one, flat tire or whatever. Um, so that was, you know, I mean there was some there was some fortune that uh, smiled upon those those treads and that I didn't hit any. I mean I hit a lot of potholes and a lot knocked a lot <laughs> of things off, and I got about twenty stories of things that went wrong. The tires were not one of them. Right? That's a pretty impressive, uh, pretty impressive there to not sort of uh, run into those sort of issues. Let's talk about where you started uh, your, your first golf course that you played at on that tour. Oh, the first one was Chambers Bay, the lovely Chambers Bay. So anybody that's played it loves it. It just there's no I, I don't know who doesn't love that place. Um, and the people that ha that have bad things to say about it are usually the folks that uh, just paid attention to the. Uh, the U.S. Open when it was there, <laughs> uh, fair criticism. The course never is that brown. Um, they never have it like that. That was all the USGA. Uh, the greens have never been great, but, like, honestly, for a guy that, like, as long as there's good greens, I'll be happy type of approach to a golf course. Uh, the course is so good that you play it in despite of the 
at times poor putting surfaces and they've since they've remedied that by uh, putting some new grass in there and they grew on all 18 greens and so I haven't been back in a while. I'd love to go back and, and see it. Um, that course is easily one of my, my favorites. It's very high in the fun meter. Uh, architecturally, it's got some stuff that you do not see in the United States. Um, I don't think people give it enough credit, even though it's you know it gets big tournaments and it has some acclaim. I still think it's a little underrated. Um, and so I was thrilled with the staff out there, as friendly as can be. Uh, and they welcomed me with open arms into having my kickoff tour there. I think we had about, there's about 20 of us uh, that went out for like a kickoff party. <laughs> and uh, we played golf and gave away a, gave away a driver and uh, had, the, had the time of our lives. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But everybody signed that guest book that first day. And then I, uh, then I went on the news. I went on the news that first day. So it was like I played Chambers Bay and then went on the Seattle evening news with Aaron Levine, who, who runs a, a segment called Cue It Up Sports and is, is involved with the, the first tee of Greater Seattle. So it was a perfect little little kickoff where I went in there and, and talked about what I was planning to do over the next 365 days. That's a fun interview to watch for me because I go back and be like, man, I had an idea, but I didn't realize what was about to <laughs> transpire over the next 365 days. The uh, the, the appearance on the news was good, and then I, I I capped it on the on the the return. A year later, I went back on queued up sports with Aaron, and we talked about the things that I I had done, what I'd learned, what the money that we raised for the the first tee. Uh, so that was kind of like my beginning and end there uh, on the on the Seattle news. So very grateful for for Aaron to have me on and and to share my my story at the beginning and end. Yeah, and absolutely. And- you know, you had an idea of what you wanted the RGV tour to be like, but, you know, it was very much a personal thing for you, right? I assume you knew people would kind of get involved as it went along, but I can't imagine you can ever envision what it would become. You couldn't imagine even on the first day that you're going to be on TV to, telling your story. You couldn't imagine, you know, you wanted to raise money for the first tee, but you didn't quite know how much you were going to raise. You know, was there ever a fear that you were like, maybe there just won't be as much interest in it as I thought? And then, and then as it went on, yeah. that was eased off very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I you obviously have thoughts of Granger, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that that you kind of like this could happen or this could happen. And when you look at it as in terms of just an idea, it's endless. I mean, it's an endless idea. They could, there's so many things you could do with that in like a second edition or rendition, um, and the momentum and the money. Like, so I had all these kind of ideas, but then I was also realistic, and it's like, man, I'm just you know, I'm a guy playing golf. Like, who's really gonna who's going to get fired up about this. Um, and so I scheduled it as so much that it's like, all right, if you're going to do this and like nobody cares, you're going to be cool with spending all a bunch of money and then just playing golf every day. And I was like, yeah, I can, <laughs> I'm happy to just do this by myself and see these golf courses and see America. And uh, if nobody wants to join, then fine. I'm sure I'll play with some strangers and make some friends along the way. <laughs> and then after a year, and I hang it up, what I consider is it a success. And I was like, yes. Um, so that was cool. My bar was, if I hit the lowest of bars, I was still going to be satisfied. So I knew I had that on my side. So I took some solace in that. And then obviously it was, it was successful. Um, I, I rate it as, um, could have been more successful. Obviously you look at anything you do and say that could have 
been better. I, I could have done this or that, but I did a lot of things that I wanted to do. A lot of things that I never thought would have, would have happened, uh, ended up uh, materializing. Um, and we, the goal was 10,000 for the first tee. And it was like, there wasn't a, you know, a big event or like a lot of laid out plans and like, this is clearly how we're going to raise money. I knew that I had a couple of people that wanted to donate some swag to the tour. I was like, all right, if people donate to the first tee, I can give out swag, a head cover, uh, you know, with some, some towels or, or whatever that particular piece was. And we had some great people that the, the folks over at sick cups, water bottles, those were, were, were a hit. Um, and so as people came and played, I give them a tour of the RV and then see if they wanted to buy anything and, uh, and donate to the first tee. And so that was kind of the plan. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, you know, maybe you get 20, 40 bucks a day. You know, it's not a, it's not like a, everybody's just joining and throwing money at you. Uh, and I was like, well, we could probably get 10,000. And about halfway through, we realized, um, that we were at $10,000. And so we reset, um, to get to 20 and by God, we did it. And it was, uh, it's a number I'm proud of. I know that people go on and have these events where they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars in you know, one event, but a lot of those events take a great deal of planning, a lot of connections into the charitable world and fundraising is, is difficult. Um, those that are good at it are really good at it. And this was my first attempt. <laughs> so, um, it, I mean, the number of strangers that, that donated and, just people that heard about the story and were like, here's a hundred bucks. Like that <laughs> happened at the, um, at the golf, the bar at Southern Hills. I mean, I met this guy and he, uh, I told him maybe like five minutes into what I was doing and raising money. And he just slid a hundred bucks over. He's like, that's for the, that's for the first tee. And you know, so like stuff like that was really cool when people opened their, their hearts and then, then their wallets to whatever I was the, the passion that I had and that, you know, that happened. And those were the days and moments that really were stuck out to me and were, were memorable. Yeah. Like you say, there is not to ever take away from the people that raise hundreds of thousands and millions in, in events, but they've kind of got a basis, if you like, haven't you know, the PJ tour golfer puts on a, a foundation and an event, you know, he's got the connections. He can get his buddies to come in and, and donate to it. He can get a guy to come on on tour and play it and, and raise the, you know, the profile of it. Everything's there. They know they've got a management team that will deal with the infrastructure of everything. You were a one-man band. You yeah. knew you wanted to raise some money for it. You didn't particularly know how to go about it. I'm assuming your sales background would have helped in, in terms of, of generating the interest. And, but really and truly, you are relying on the generosity of, of the American public and, now, I've seen firsthand how generous people can be in America, and it, it is great, but that must have been so satisfying to hit not only your target, but then to double it. It must have just been a, an overwhelming feeling, especially when you handed over the check. Yeah, I did, you know, um, and I wanted to, I've always wanted to have one of those uh, <laughs> big plastic checks, um, and I, for, for a long time, I thought, you know, I wanted it to be given to me. I'd be, a, uh, you're, you know, you're rich. Happy you're Gilmore. <laughs> yeah, and, and but uh I don't know. I've never received one, but I can. I would imagine that giving one is more powerful um, than than receiving one. You know, you want to be on both sides of that that exchange. <laughs> uh, but I love handing over to Evan Johnson, who is the program director over there at the First Tee of Greater Seattle. Does amazing work with kids. Like he's the sort of dude you're like, yeah, like. I want my kids to hang out with Evan. He's going to teach them the way of the world. And he's a, he's a real guy too. He's not, you know, 
just you know mr pc um he's he's a genuine guy that instills a desire and excitement for the game of golf out there at jefferson park every day and um so i knew that the money was going to more range time more clubs and uh, you know they they need those donations to survive as an organization so i happily took a large uh, burden off of Evan for that that year and was able to um, help him do his do his thing and and that's cliche but there may be a kid out there that fell in love with the game of golf because I I did this ridiculously ludicrous thing and and was able to help in some way yeah absolutely no it's wonderful and and you know thank you for doing that for, as a golf fan it's it's lovely to hear and it's nice for you to share that passion going more into the details of you know your own personal uh, expectations for the tour. If, if I remember right, was it Oakmont that was the course that you really circled as somewhere that you wanted to play? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oakmont is was. I think I mentioned it on the uh, the Seattle News when Aaron asked me what course are you hoping to play. I put Oakmont on there because I I just I've I studied it and you see it on television. I love the fact there were no trees out there and it, how difficult it is and like it was just one of those courses that I I felt like I needed to see and. Uh, yeah, I got a chance to go out and, and golf my ball on that, that piece of land. And it is some, I played so well. I played so well that day, uh, mostly because I played with guys that were all like plus fives. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so these guys are, you know, they have like the sticks at Oakmont, half of them were caddies and uh, they're bombing it. And so I, I'm just trying to keep up and, I, and I'm paying attention to the good advice. I mean, they, they know where to hit it. And I, and I hit it all in the right spots all day long uh, made some birdies out there, and uh, one of my favorite photos comes. We arrived on 18, and the sun was setting, and it's just a miraculous view of the, the clubhouse in the background and this beautiful, difficult par four. I think I had driver three iron into that thing, uh, managed to make a par, uh, and uh, snapped a couple of really cool shots because the lighting was just right, uh, and so. Those those photos remind me of that day. Uh, just you know, I never dreamed of pulling up in an RV and parking it in the, the back parking lot of Oakmont and go playing <laughs> golf. Um, yeah. That happened, you know. So that was exciting to get a chance to see a place like that. Um, there's so many great golf courses that I visited. Oakmont was at the top of that list. Yeah, I was going to say that. Obviously, that was somewhere that you that you circled as somewhere that you wanted to visit at the start. And by the end of it, was that your favorite place? That you, was it hard to pick any one course? Because I suppose as much as playing the courses, and I've got a two prong question: is what was your favorite to play, and which was your favorite to shoot in terms of photography? Because I imagine mm. there's probably a different answer for both. No, no, <laughs> it's it's. Uh, I mean, there's others in the conversation. But I mean, a lot of people say it, and you probably heard it before. But Cypress Point was was hands down the uh, the most exciting, best golf course that I, I had a chance to play. And it wasn't like you know we I didn't take many photos when I was out there. It's it, there's a policy there to to focus on the golf and uh, play the game as it was meant to be played. And so I I really did my best to enjoy that experience and uh, enjoy it. I did. Uh, that was a real real treat to see to see cypress point with everybody you know you've you've heard about it they've written books about it and to me it really delivered in terms of the walk that it is it's so well done the the art of routing was lost i think it's come back a little bit with the real estate golf real estate boom of so many courses where there's like a mile in between um and cypress did 
the tees and greens are right next to each other. I mean, that's one of Alistair McKenzie's tenets of design is that the the tee boxes and the greens shall be close to one another. You see it at Augusta National. And what it does is it makes a round of golf really fun to walk. Um, and I don't – I hate golf carts. I mean, if I can walk <laughs> – and, it, it, and for those that don't share that – you know that desire to walk everywhere they play um they're missing out i'm telling you you're missing out especially when a course that's designed you know like that at the apex of a of a career that's it's very storied um it's done so well and it really adds to what's already there is the magnificent pines the dunes the the oceanside holes it really i mean i remember every golf shot i hit on that that place which is which as tough to say about any other course on the on the tour so that one stands out um there i've i'd beforehand i'd seen a lot of really great golf courses and so some of the the big names i just didn't i didn't make an effort to play again because i was really looking to see new places uh places i hadn't explored and um and not double up and i obviously did but um, the majority of the courses once i got out of the west coast where i played a lot of golf were all brand new i would just play if I'm going to play a course, it's going to be a course I hadn't seen before because, to me, the exploration of a new course is what's so exciting. I mean, it's infinitely more exciting than playing a place you've seen before because you get to unwrap that new hole, and it's something that you can study and photograph. And there was a lot of beauties out there. Um, to answer your question um, on the most, I guess, the best setting for photography, uh, there's this, there's a course in uh, Sedona. Because those who have been to Sedona know it's one of the most beautiful places in the United States. And it's seven canyons, and it's just built through, I guess, these seven canyons, but these big red rocks. Uh, it's a Weisskopf design that sits down in there. And the course holds its own, but the scenery really steals the show. I mean, there, there, there are some magnificent rock formations there. And, and that take away from Utah, too. you got, like, Sand Hollow, which is a really beautiful spot um, with a good golf course on it. But, I mean, I could go through – I could name about 50 golf courses that were just – I was thrilled to take photos of. Do you think there's a particular state? Because obviously you visited all but one due to a snowstorm. Uh, mm. Was there a particular state that's best for as a collective for golf courses? You know, there's individuals across the country, but just one state where you enjoyed spending the most amount of time over a period of you know a few days or a week. Yeah, so I, I had thought about that question before I took off, and I said those are the states I want to hit during peak time, and the answer to those. And I hadn't seen a lot of like California is the best, the best state. It's got the most. Um, <laughs> but the the other two that I hadn't seen that I really wanted to explore was New York, because um, New York's good. It's a, it's a real close second to California. I mean, there's so many golden age designs and just you could throw you could throw rock left and right and you'd land on a, a marvelous fairway in both directions. Um, so New York. Got two weeks on my schedule. I think it ended up being like more like three. I just couldn't control myself out there. And then <laughs> in Michigan is another beautiful state. Um, I know Wisconsin's got great public golf, but I'd already seen a lot of Wisconsin. And I, so I had to kind of, you know, hedge my bets into which states I wanted to jump in on. And Michigan and New York were my two states that I really focused heavy on. New York was great because there's also, in addition to the amount of golf courses there, there's an insane amount of people that love golf and there's just a lot of people in New York in general, but 
I must have had a hundred people that wanted to play golf with me when I when I rolled over the state line, um, and I did my best to play with most of them. You know, that's one thing I would have loved to do is to play with everybody that reached out to me. Um, it's, it was such a, a nightmare times <laughs> coordinating <laughs> that I mean things are going to slip through the cracks. And if you're listening to this and I and I shafted you, which I don't think there's too many people. Um, I found out about a couple of them, you know, people were like, oh, you didn't ask. And I was like, oh, you know, so I always feel bad about those and my, my sincerest apologies. Um, but it was a, it was a tricky task to navigate, you know, trying to play golf with hundred people in, in 14 days. And I did as best I could. I did 36 a day for like, I think like a month when I was in New York, I was just like golfing left and right. And it was the time of day or the time of the, the year where that was possible. Right. You know, you had long days, um, and I went for it. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 one of the things, I mean, the thing that initiated attracted me to your Instagram page was the photography, drone photographies. I mean, I never get bored of seeing drone photography, especially of golf courses. And when did you realize that you were good at that? Because I suppose there's one thing being good at photography on the ground, which I think a lot of people can get to. And and the technology of of drones is it you know is exceptional, and, and it kind of doesn't make your job easy. But it must be an art to be able to control that and get the lighting and, and the positions that you want whilst also trying to think about playing the golf the same day as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I highly advise against trying to do landscape drone photos and then playing golf and then capturing social content all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, golf is enough to, to distract you um, and much less added photography, which is kind of, kind of, I merged my golf game to like take photos as I go. But you know, it's it's part video game, and I think a lot of the, uh, I mean, if you're a good photographer and you have the the eye and you know what's cool and unique about golf courses and how to shoot lighting um, when it comes and where to find it uh, with a, you know, a camera on the golf course, that translates pretty pretty well to drone photography. What drone photography does is gives you pretty much an infinite new supply of angles to shoot from. And so that is what is attracted to me so much. Like when it first started coming out, you see somebody take a drone shot and I was like, holy crap. Right. Everybody was like, that's, that's so cool. And so I knew I had to get, I knew I had to get in. I was like, I was missing (laughs) Uh, all these angles that exist. And like, it's why you saw a lot of, I mean, back in the day, golf photographers would rent helicopters and shoot out of the helicopters. And those were always stunning images, but that's obviously very expensive to rent a helicopter. (laughs) fly over a golf course you can't do that at every course you go to um and they would rent ladders to get that extra seven eight feet height that really allows you to see the the hole at a different viewpoint and but still be recognizable uh, the drone takes it to a whole other level and it's fun and i mean i think it when i first started they were <laughs> whatever about it but i you know I, you get some hits and then you start figuring out you know, as in photography, like, you know, what are some of the, the tricks and why is this image good that I captured? Oh, because of this and this reason. And then, you know, to search those conditions out going forward. And so I know what I'm doing when I get up there in, in the air or the, the type of shot that I can that I can get. And I'll scout it from like the when I play a golf course, you know, I'll be like this, put the drone right up there and get that is good. You know, because I know the elements that I'm looking for all exist on that particular hole. Um, and uh, what looks good from the sky. Big features usually are pretty interesting, depending on how high you want to go. It's a, it's an endless 
sort of uh, puzzle to figure out. And there's a hundred different types of drone photos that you can get, whether it's just slightly elevated to maintain the, oh, it still looks like a landscape, but it's really not, to like, you know, top down, getting some of those those different shots from a ways away from the golf course are also interesting. It's, you know, it's why people take photos, iPhone photos out of airplanes, because it's cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, when you spoke, obviously, you gave up your job, and then halfway through this tour, or I don't know exactly when it may have happened, but was there a time where you thought, right, I don't want to go back to doing any sort of job that doesn't involve golf and <laughs> and when you start putting up these drone footage pictures and the, the wonderful compositions you put together is that when you start to realize actually this is probably you know a career for me and i can i can make a living out of producing this content well you know it really comes down to the the dollars and cents i realized that yeah everybody's like i love to take pictures of golf course for a living i knew known that for a while um <laughs> but you're like I can't, I can't do it. You know, nobody's going to give me the money to pay the rent. And then you, you just realize that it's not possible. Um, and so it wasn't till after I was still, you know, I knew I wanted to have a career in golf because it was what was satisfied me, you know, it didn't feel like work, even though a lot of what I was doing was work. Um, it was fun. I didn't mind, you know, playing golf and then editing photos, writing about it. I had a podcast on that, on that tour, I'm doing a podcast about it, uh, interviewing all these people, which is technically work, but it was like, this is fun. This is, and I'm passionate about it. And this is what I should be doing. And it, so you're like, then you just say, all right, let's figure out a way to, so I can keep doing this. You know, I don't want to go back. So you got to figure out a way. And, um, and not necessarily a moment, but like you get a couple of things that you're like, you know, somebody, sees the value of what you're doing and they compensate you for it. And then you do a good job and you see that they are happy. You're like, this is good on all, all fronts. And you're like, now I just need to take this and do it X amount of times and I can pay rent, you know? <laughs> so, um, that's kind of, that's the formula. You've got to find something that people are willing to compensate you for. The photography is the, is the thing, right? Yeah. So some, some of the images I'm able to provide these clubs are of great value to them. You know, it's a unique perspective. It's eye catching. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've motivated through just my Instagram to go play this golf course. Um, that's, that's the value. Um, so once I realized that that's kind of what I was doing and there was a, a need there where people could pay me and feel satisfied with what I was giving them, um, was, uh, was I was like, well, let's let's see what I can do. I, I tell you, I'd rather just be eating beans in a can and then doing this, and you know, and living in a whatever. Uh, <laughs> but if you can <laughs> and do something that you love to do every day, well, you're going to be better off than somebody that's banking, balling, you know, and they're doing this thing that they don't really care to do every day. Um, and most people that make a lot of money are good at it because they're they're passionate about it. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there that make money and that they don't really give a damn about what they do. Um, and they have nice things. It's like, that doesn't, that really, it, it was, it's not a, a recipe for living life and you'd much better be, you'd be better off just not having a lot of things that you think you need, but like doing stuff that matters to you and is enjoyable every day. Um, so that's, you got to find a balance too, because like there's there you can you can do things you don't necessarily want to do to subsidize that, to 
doing the majority of the things that you like to do, right? So that's the endless puzzle and putting it all together, figuring out how that works, where you can be happy and successful all in the same thing is, is very difficult to really figure out. Um, and so that's what I, I'm continuing to do to this day. You know, since, since 2018, I've been fortunate enough to figure out a way to exist without <laughs> a, um, a normal job. But it, it's kind of like the fear of like having to do that almost motivates you at, at a certain point. And then, you know, you figure out a way. And so it's stuff like that that's happened. I've had some great opportunities come along. We're working with um, a company called About Golf now that does golf simulators. Because okay, when you're not out traveling and seeing the, the place, you can fire up a simulator and go to go to Kiowa Island. Um, so doing some social media work for them, I'm putting together a fun video that I, I uh, that I filmed just last week today. Stuff like that is the stuff that, that allows me to keep doing what I'm doing. And I, you know, so I'm forever grateful for those, those sort of opportunities. And I, hopefully I can just keep doing it. Maybe I'll have to go you know, sell advertising eventually, who knows? <laughs> no, I, th I think you'll be okay for a little while just yet, which is, and I think the message you got across there was, you know, you had a passion, you, you chased it, and then you found a way to, to continue bringing it into your life. And, and, you know, like you say, even if you had to go and subsidize it by doing something you didn't you enjoy, then fine, but you, you managed to keep that constant and really enjoy it. I've got a couple of stories on it from the tour that I've kind of read about that, that really grabbed my attention. I'll let you tell any others that you might think are, uh, are good as well. But there was one, and I think it was a place called Elk River, and and you oh, were yeah. hitting a shot out the rough um, or out the trees, and and people were just staring at you. Why were they staring at you, Patrick? <laughs> oh, it's good. So this is good. It's the, the ninth hole at Elk River. Hopefully somebody has played it because it doesn't get a lot of love. It's a Nicholas course that's that's pretty grand, um, and I hit my I hit a nine iron into this green. I missed it right. I hit this little fade shot short right that I hate. I hate the hit in that shot, but I hit it. So I'm annoyed. I'm walking. There's a creek in front of it, but there's bridges over to the left, and I noticed the maintenance guys um, are grouped up, and they're staring me down. I'm like, oh, maybe these guys are like, they saw the RV, and they're like fans, or I don't know. And uh, But they're really eyeballing me hard. It catches my attention to the point where it's like kind of distracting. And I go over to my ball, which is there's like a line of trees and the right hand side up over the creek by the green kind of goes the whole hole there's a forest up there um and that's maybe i don't know 15 yards from the green side um where my ball is and i fail i go over there and I chip and i fail to get up and down i'm kind of you know bummed about that or and i and i walk over to the guys who are still steering me down the whole time and so i was like what's what's up dudes <laughs> They're like, you are one crazy son of a bitch, uh, or something to that effect. They were kind of blown away. I was like, well, I mean, I'm sure you've seen somebody make a bogey before. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no, he's like, man, look look back over there. Um, look back at the green. And so I look back, and there is a, uh, I'm going to say he's, I mean, if he's 600 pounds, he's 2,000 pounds, right? Um, <laughs> there on that tree line just inside the bushes there eat it just eating berries um just casual as can be and where he was i was no long i was no more than like 15 feet from this guy which blows my mind because the next day i saw another bear and if you hear a bear breathe you can just get a sense for their their immense size you're like well that's a big deal. i have no idea how i was that close to this bear and did not like he didn't notice me <laughs> and i <laughs> 
probably saw me, I guess he must've, um, but did nothing, you know? And I got so close to him and just, you know, I just didn't get up and down. Maybe he's just a fan of golf. Uh, but that was, that was bizarre, uh, that I got that close to a bear, um, in, in North Carolina there and, uh, and survived pretty casually. Do you think that was probably the, the, the potentially the most dangerous situation that you got into on the tour? <sighs> I mean, wildlife. Yes. Cause that guy could have just, you know, taken a handful of steps and <laughs> knocked me out. Um, and another one of my favorite stories, um, and I've told this one before on podcast, but I feel like there are probably some people that don't, don't this one. This is one of my favorites. This was dangerous what I originally thought, um, because in the, on the roads of New York, they're, uh, they're, they're awful. <laughs> they're horrible. <laughs> and in an RV, like you're driving and then just, just banging, like just stuff's falling. And it's just annoying. Cause it's like the whole RV is shaking. The, the microwave, like, sh- like literally rattled the microwave. I had to get these like, big, massive screws and like screw the microwave back into the, <laughs> the wall. Because the microwave almost fell out of the freaking wall. It just rattles it so hard. But I'm driving to Pound Ridge uh, through these these awful roads, and it's banging all over the place. And then all of a sudden, there's like a smoke that just starts wafting into the um, into the cab. Uh, and I'm like, oh, hell, the RV is finally on fire. It was going to burn down. So I immediately pull over and realize it's, it's not – it didn't smell like – it's not smoke. Um and so I go in the back there, and the whole thing is just kind of like covered in like this this powder. And I quickly realized what it was: is the the fire extinguisher had rattled off of its like I don't know how this thing is like. <laughs> anyways, it knocked it off, and somehow depressed in the stairwell, walking up there's like two or three steps there, and just emptied its contents all out. <laughs> out for like like months, I was like trying still trying to get this crap out of there. If anybody's ever deployed one of those things on their friends, they definitely know that it's a it's a big mess. <laughs> and that was what. So it was potentially. I thought it was a fire. Um, all, all was safe. You know, we cleaned that thing up. Uh, and God, one of the hottest days in New York that I played out at Pound Ridge there. I nearly passed out twice in the fairway. It was so hot. But I walked that golf course in like 150 degree weather. Yeah, for the stubbornness to, to walk every golf course <laughs> yeah and hats off to the guys that i played with that their names elude me at this point but i made the guys walk with me <laughs> and i said you can take a card if you want but like they felt the pressure right and uh, they walked that thing with me i don't know how we all survived we were just drenched in sweat um but those guys were great that was a fun day you had a also you had a pretty good selection of of celebrities and famous people that you came across during your time on this tour. Um, you, you managed to bump into Bill Clinton at one point. Um, he was playing with, with James Patterson. Yeah, that was, uh, that was at Sleepy Hollow. Um, that's a cool story. That's a cool story. Um, and that, you know, I just showed up there and we're going to play and uh, our hosts um, lets us know that it, it's going to be a little slow today because we had to play behind Bill Clinton and, James Patterson. I was like, the, the president? <laughs> He's like, yeah. <laughs> and um, it's, it's funny because he, so we're like, oh, we're all waiting for him to show up. And there's a handful of like security guys. I think they got this. It's not a big detail that an ex-president has. Um, but they're there. And 
and I turn around and then, you know, sure enough, there's Bill Clinton. And I was, I felt like I knew him for some reason. Cause I knew, I watched some YouTube clips of the way that Bill Clinton talks about golf and like, he gets it and he's like, he's a golfer and he's not good, but he's, he loves it. And so I was like, I just, I was very casually, I was like, Hey Bill and, and shook his hand and he, you know, unfortunately didn't know who I was, <laughs> uh, but he shook my hand and then shook everybody else's hand. And, um, and in a way we watched him play golf, um, hit some weird shots, but, uh, you know, James, James was much more reserved, real author vibes. You know, he's, he's in his own sort of world, um, and didn't get it, didn't, didn't have an exchange with James. Um, but yeah, we had, we had a lot of professional athletes, a lot of ex NFL guys that would, um, they just, you know, they have that, that sportsman chips. It's still in them, right. You know, if you, succeed at that high of level uh, golf suits a lot of those people you know once they're no longer can compete in their sport they're like well golf is something i can do and so a lot of guys throw themselves into into the the golf golf realm um you know we didn't get any like super big you know no tom brady appearances um we had uh, well Paige, Paige is kind of like the celebrity of our sport Paige spiernak um, so I was, she's our lone sports illustrated swimsuit model credit. Uh, <laughs> she joined the tour in the podcast. And, uh, after I gave her a pretty good, pretty good beating at mountain shadows, um, that she is, uh, vowed to, uh, to, to get, get back on. Um, so, um, it was a good smattering of like, I mean, to me, anybody that joined that tour, they're all, they're all celebrities because they were the people that really made it exciting for me to get up day in, day out and like go play more golf and like, not just going through the motions, but like legit, this is a great day sort of thing. And so it's the people that, you know, didn't have a, you know, celebrity attached to them that were just as exciting to play golf with once, once she got out there and, and realized that how cool some of these people actually are and the things that they do. And, you know, people are, people are amazing. And when you take the chance to, to get to know them, uh, everybody's got a, a cool thing to share. And that's the thing, isn't it? There's a couple of other guys I'm going to go on to, but the thing with with not being a celebrity, right, is that you know nothing about them. So when you see someone in the spot, you know what Bill Clinton's done. It's not a surprise to you. You know, uh, you know what these other guys have done. But when you when you come across somebody and you meet them for the first time, you've got a whole eighteen holes of getting to know somebody, and, and nothing they anything they tell you is a complete you know, surprised you because you've never heard it. You had no idea. And, and it's probably great to have a learning experience like that and, and to share your story along the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, you, you've, you've nailed it. I mean, the people that you would meet and then they wouldn't even know what you were doing. And then you explain to them what you're doing and they get all excited about being on the RGV tour <laughs> change. And you find some, find, you know, something really cool about this, this person or, or that person that, um, I mean, they could have everywhere else been a, been a celebrity. So celebrity is such an odd, odd thing. And the reason we elevate people to, to such a status is, um, and when you play with like a celebrity, then you realize, Oh, it's just a normal person that has done something interesting. And now it's like turned into this, this something completely different. Uh, but they're all normal people and all, you know, you get along with them just like you would, um, a total stranger. 
Yeah, I think I've kind of figured it out myself as well with doing interviews with professional golfers. You put them on this pedestal, right, and you, you, you go through all this research and you prepare yourself to talk to them. You don't quite know what they're going to be like. And then you start turning them for like 20 minutes, half hour, and you realise it's just another guy. Like, you know, they're just another person and don't don't look at them as anything else. And, and they appreciate that as well. And you, you start to get more out of them and they open up when you, when you treat them that way. But two people that you come across on the tour, I think one is a golf course lover. Tom Fazio must have been quite quite amazing to come across. Oh, yeah. um, Funny because and... you know you you say celebrities it's like I should have a list in my head and then you mention these people and I'm like oh I forgot that happened. <laughs> yeah, and so then... I, I can I can tell you what Tom was like, um, and it was at Jupiter Jupiter Hills, which is a course that he designed, and the guy that I'm, I was playing golf with had told Tom what I was doing. Uh, he was friends with him. He was having lunch with him, and Tom's like, oh, I'd love to meet him. So he comes down. And here comes Tom Fazio uh, down to the range to meet me, which is kind of a cool thing in and of itself. Uh, but I was like, Tom, I feel like we're best buddies because I spent so many of the past days <laughs> admiring your work every day, you know, go and play a, play a new, new golf course and, uh, that you've built. So I feel like I know this guy, you know. So we just start talking uh, immediately about all the different things and it first jumped out to me is that like Tom just goes like you ask him a question and he's got, he just goes, he's, he's, he's strong willed. Uh, he's got his, he's got his opinions. And, and you know, it was fun. Cause I was like, Oh, this, I asked him like, what the hell was he thinking here? And so you ask him a couple of things. And I remember uh, it was like, there was, I think it's like the 14th hole at Aldera. I feel like it's way too long for the green there. And I've always thought that about that golf course or that particular golf hole. And so I asked him, you know, why is that, that green, that should be 150 yards. It's like 210. And what were you thinking there? He's like, I was like, I'm thinking you should hit a better long iron into that green. <laughs> so, so it was just, you know, it is how it is with, with Tom. And he's kind of his own guy. He's obviously made a career at doing it. And, and at the highest of levels with all the, the wildly critically acclaimed golf courses that he's given, given us. So it was a tremendous treat to see me, Tom, and then, plays golf course and he was still there when i we had we had uh drinks and uh snacks in the uh the clubhouse there and heard a bunch of stories from him and his him and his friends um that was a that was a cool day yeah absolutely and, and the last person i want to reference is you you had a pretty special playing partner at the old course at st andrews yeah that wasn't on the rgv tour but that one is um when you say celebrity there's not much there's not many bigger um but i got a chance to play 18 holes on the old course with with bill murray the uh the man himself and that one came after the tour i uh i got invited to play the alfred not play the alfred dunhill links but uh, cover it uh, through photography and social media which is most people in the u.s are not super familiar with that that tournament but most people are familiar with the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And so it's kind of like that, where they have three different golf courses, the old course, Carnoustie, and um, uh, Kings Barnes. And you play them in rotation, and they have celebrities that come out there. And so got to walk along with um, guys like Justin Timberlake, um, the godfather, the, the grandfather, uh, uh, Luke Wilson. <laughs> and... Uh, Greg Kinnear was out there as well. So a lot of these celebrities kind of join in and, and then you get to see, you know, guys like Rory and Justin Rose compete. So, um, it was really cool to do that. And, uh, then one day after, you know, I don't know, I think it was 
Saturday or Sunday. Um, we're having dinner with Greg and, and Luke are there. And um, about halfway through the dinner, Bill Murray just sits down across from, from me and he's got his hair's all wild. He's like, ah, sorry guys. I, I was, uh, I was watching TV and fell asleep. <laughs> and the thing is, it's like, it's very casual there in regards that like celebrity, you know, especially of that status is so revered in the U S it's not as much so in the UK and they're the celebrities love it. Cause they're treated more just like a normal person doing normal things. They're just playing golf. Right. And you know, that's, that's kind of how the vibe was. And so we, we asked stories of Bill and he tells stories and he's kind of like, it's a little freaky. <laughs> I mean, I handle myself pretty well with, with most people, but everybody's got one or two people that you'd just be like, what, you know, it, it kind of <laughs> takes you back. It, we're, nobody's immune to that sort of celebrity mystique and Bill's got it in spades. And, uh, after the dinner, um, guy who runs the tournament there does a great job putting together a, a mir miraculous event there. Um, guys, you know, we're, uh, all the media get a chance to play the Monday afterwards. Um, they play the old course. And so it's, everybody looks forward to, to playing that obviously. And so that's the next day. And, uh, I, he says, who, you know, who are, who are we playing with? Like, I'm just wondering what the plan is for tomorrow as we're getting ready to leave. And, uh, so I was, Oh, it's me. You know, and, and, and I think it was John and then, and Bill, uh, oh, okay. I'm like, Bill Murray. He's, he's, he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, so I was kind of excited. And, but I was like, ah, I'll believe it when Bill Murray shows up and I play golf with him. And sure enough, sure enough, Bill shows up like at the, like at nine o'clock, he's like runs out of the, the hotel, which is right on the 17th hole there. Runs out right onto the, it was a scramble. So I think we teed off on like the third hole um, and, and joins our group. <laughs> so we, so you're kind of like, holy shit, uh, we're playing off Bill Murray and the way we go. <laughs> and uh, that's the thing. It's such a, it's the thing about, it's great about golf. Like you have any experience with Bill Murray, it's going to be kind of limited and you're, you know, he's, he's a movie star and you're a normal person. Uh, but when you're on the golf course, everybody is just a golfer. That's what you are. And so it like totally levels the playing field. Um, you're just playing fun and you're sharing a love some, you know, in this thing that you both love to do. It's really cool. So it's like the best way to ever get to meet somebody like that. And uh, Bill is funny. He's funny. He, he resorts to, comedy 90 percent of the time if you ask him a serious question you're probably going to just gonna end up laughing <laughs> um, but it, sometimes he just responded with an honest answer and he just talked about his life or he, you know he took a an rv trip across his uh with his family as well so like those sort of things to have those exchanges with bill on the old course and you know watch his light eyes light up when he makes a birdie and um that was that was just as cool as it gets yeah, and like you say, I mean, for someone like Bill Murray, he gets interviewed all the time. He probably gets asked a lot of mundane questions that he kind of has to have limited responses to because he's, he's not really that interested in being there. But you knew that he wants to play golf. He's played the old course. Everyone's got a common denominator. They love golf. Um, you know, he's a handy golfer, but you're obviously better than him in terms of handicap. And, and, and so you kind of feel like you're on a level playing field, like you're saying, and it's just nice to be able to walk along. I mean, some of the best conversations you'd have on a golf course, right? And, and being able yeah. to do that with someone that you've looked up to for so long must've been really special. Yeah. The, my favorite, my favorite part of the round, um, and I wrote an article for golf 
magazine on the experience, which I really enjoyed doing. Um, but I don't think that this particular anecdote, because it would have been longer, fit in the, the requirement. <laughs> but we're on the 18th hole of the old course, um, and Bill Bill hit one into the the houses over there, <laughs> the hotel. Uh, funny, and it's you know then he waved to the people. It's great. But before that happens, um, I go up to Bill and I'm like Bill, my favorite. Um, my favorite line in Ghostbusters is, and the flowers are still standing. And I don't know why I just, I, I, I had to say this to Bill. Uh, <laughs> and so he looks at me kind of like, he's kind of, um, he's taken aback a bit. I'm like, maybe he doesn't remember the line. Uh, but he, but he looks at me and he's like, that's, um, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, as Harold Ramis is, I think the director on that, um, they, he's like, we had a uh, disagreement for about two weeks on that particular line. Because he's like, as you, I obviously know that is, you know, pr- premier comedy gold, that line right there. And so he fought for that line and that seemed to be kept into the movie. Um, and the, oh, should, we should actually set the stage of the, the line because most people don't remember that particular one. But it's in the uh, the scene where they're getting ready to capture Slimer and they're in the hotel ballroom and there's all these big fancy things, all these, uh, the silverware and fancy place settings on there and they're clearing rooms. There's knocking everything over, but Bill pauses. Um, I'm sorry, Venkman pauses and he's like, hold up. I've always wanted to do this right before they kick over the table. (laughs) Tries to pull the, the, uh, uh, tablecloth out from under and have everything still stand. You know, (laughs) gag and it, it just everything just goes flying everywhere but they're like this massive vase of flowers that obviously would not fall and uh and he just triumphantly yells and the flowers are still standing and i it tickled my fancy right um and so bill fought for that line to get kept into the movie and they thought nah and in the, in the end you'll realize that it was a compromise that only the audio i think exists and it's not bill or Peter's frame, or his, it, the visual portion is not accompanied with that. Uh, so t- to me, like just to get that little tidbit, is kind of like a behind-the-scenes thing that uh, you know he probably never talks about um, from the man himself on the 18th hole at the old course was. I mean, the round was filled with stuff like that, and that was just one one little piece that I thought was so neat and just kind of a, a cool little thing. And then he pumped one into the houses. It was great. <laughs> And just before I let you go here, a couple of other questions. I know that obviously you said that if you know that you did, it was a success and it was a triumph. But there's obviously things that you could have done better and things that you wish you got to. You've been overseas. You know, you've travelled pretty well as far as I can see on your on your website and through your golf course photography. Is there somewhere in the world that you're desperate to shoot? I mean, maybe Australia, mm-hmm. New Zealand, England. I don't think it's on it on the list. Is there? Is there somewhere you you plan to go? I've got some friends in England, so that's on the list. But right at the top, you nailed it. Um, Australia, New Zealand. There's a, a number of courses out there that I've seen. I feel like Terra Edie, the ones that I've seen of Terra Edie are beautiful, and I feel like I could I could do just as good and not better. And you know, I want to do it myself. I want to see it and see what I can create in a place like that. Um, but it's not just that course. There's you know, there's the sand belt there and some of the architecture, Melbourne, Royal Melbourne. Um, it would be just a treat to play and to strategize around that golf course after witnessing. And what was it? The, I think it was the president's cup they had there recently. Yeah. Um, just oh, spectacular. And so as you look at the holes, you're like, this is, 
this is a course I want to think my way around. Like kind of like remind me a little bit of the the strategy and thought required to play Oakmont well. Um, so like something like that. I mean, I I'd, I'd go to Australia just to play that one course <laughs> and turn around. But obviously that would be foolish to do such a thing. You've got to you've got to stay and play. And so you know that's the thing. It's like it's arguably one of the most difficult spots in the world to get to. I mean, I'm not going to the South Pole, but it's it's Australia. <laughs> it's a long flight, and uh, so that's that is uh, the top of the destinations list. Um, I'm excited to get back to Ireland. There's uh, more courses there that need to be uncovered and seen. Um, hopefully, I'll be out to uh, uh, a potential gig with you know coronavirus limiting what we can all do. Um, that I'm very excited to do at a place called Hogshead, which is a new course out there. Um, owned by the same people that do uh, Wicopa. And so I did some work for Wicopa in, in, in uh, New Mexico. And so I'm excited to, to go out there and capture that majesty out there. Um, you know, you go see the new courses. But then, you know, right down the way, there's Waterville Golf Links, which is a <laughs> timeless classic. And then, oh, by the way, you know, go another an hour or 20 minutes. Here's another course. Here's another course. So who knows what, what lies for me. And there's more golf that I think I can play in a lifetime out there in just out there. I say the entire world. Right. So it's kind of like this never ending pursuit that you can do. And you can always press the shutter button, you know, right before you, right before you die. Right. So, um, it can be, a, it's a lifelong thing that I think I'm in for. And I'm happy that, that it's, uh, that it is that way. Yeah, absolutely. And just before I let you get out of here, cause I've had uh, for plenty of time now is is there anything in the pipeline that we should be looking out for in the, in, in the coming weeks and months? I know obviously coronavirus had a big impact on, on what you can do, but just to keep our yeah. eyes peeled and, and where we can find you as well on the social media channels. Yeah, I mean, the social, it's pjkoenig.com. Uh, it's the same as my Instagram handle. Uh, but, you know, I mentioned it, you know, the, the trips to, to Island, shooting Hogshead. Uh, there's a new Greg Norman course. I'm excited to do some work for Greg Norman. Um, in St. Lucia, I think that's how you say it, um, out there in the, uh, in the in the Caribbean. So there's, you know, a new course is opening here, left, right, and there. I want to be there to cover it. Um, so anybody that's, that's interested in getting my, my flair on their golf course and you're listening, uh, <laughs> I'm available for booking. Um, and uh, yeah, those are the, that's the stuff I'm excited. I'm excited just to, that, you know, the sun is setting over another beautiful golf course somewhere and uh, I'm going to go go find it, capture it and share it with everybody. Absolutely. This was the, well, it's considered the first installment in the of Why I Love Golf uh, part of this podcast and and not everyone can see this, the audio. I'm seeing this, uh, seeing a picture of your face light up every time you tell every segment <laughs> of this story and it's uh, it's wonderful to see. You know, you can see the excitement it brings, you know, because I think one of the things I really liked about the interview was, and you probably got asked it quite a lot, was after 365 days, did you ever get bored of playing golf or or fed up of doing it or shooting? And, and you never did. You never lost. You never wilted. Um, and it certainly hasn't in a couple of years since either. Yeah, that's that's a cool thing. I mean, that's a gift. Maybe it's partly my obsessive personality. Um, it's that alcohol fuel rage place. And <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I mean that's that's exciting. That I think a lot of people have the same sort of passion that I'm able to channel it into something that um, I get to do every day. So it was a pleasure to to join the the pod and talk about why I love golf um, with you. Thank you very much, Patrick. You have a great day, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon.